0: The reading of the word this morning comes from Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 through 22. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Father in heaven, we believe your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? And would you meet with us as we give our attention to this, your word? Inscribe it upon our hearts now and grant to us the Holy Spirit that he might bring to light the meaning and significance of the text just read in your presence with your people for each and every life here in this room. We submit ourselves to you. Now come and move among us, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. It was great to meet some of those new members just a moment ago, Uh, some of them waiting some time to be introduced here at uh, the body, so delighted that the Lord is is drawing his, his family together. Um, united as we are in Christ here at Cornerstone. That's an incredible treat and a delight to meet uh, new brothers and sisters and fathers and and mothers in the faith. It's so wonderful to catch their names and connect their faces a little bit, wasn't it? Uh, Some of you who are sitting out there in the pews and you're looking at these folks, you say, I've seen them from across the room. I I don't remember their names or I've not ever connected their face and their name. You were appreciative, right, of the opportunity to make that connection. And uh, now, uh, at least this morning, you have it uh, written before you in the bulletin so you can actually go up to them and you can be reading your bulletin and say, Hello, David. It is, nice, it is nice to meet you. And then next week, you will forget, and you will have to be asked again, probably, and that's okay. That's the nature of building a relationship with one another. We need to be stirred up by way of reminder. Names are important, aren't they? They're very important. They help identify one person as opposed to another. And asking for someone's name is as natural a thing in the world as we ever do. Uh, Names are the means by which we identify that one person over uh, from another person and distinct from them. And the custom of exchanging names um, actually helps us become um, over the hurdle. We might say jump the hurdle of stranger uh, into the bridge of relationship. Uh, we begin to know each other by our names. It is, however, always a little disconcerting, isn't it, when someone knows your name and you don't know their name. You've had that experience probably here or even on a Sunday morning. I had that uh, experience this week standing in line at a MAPCO station where uh, someone behind me said, are you Nate Sheridan? And I said, the one and only, here here I am. Um, are you Nate Sheridan? And I, I said, yes, I, I am. And then, was, you know, forgive me I, I, if we've met and I have forgotten. No, we've never met. I've just heard all about you. And then you go, oh, no. Oh, I promise it's not as bad as it sounds. We can... We can start over, I, I, you know, I, don't your heart seat just a little bit when somebody says that because you don't know what they've heard, but you know a little about your life and it could be anything, it could be, it could be that they've heard something really good about you or it could be that they've heard something really true about you and, and that would be disconcerting if that were the case it's in those moments where you want to catch up on the lost ground, right? You want, to, you want to get to know them. You want to get to know their name and maybe a little bit of their story and maybe most importantly how they knew you and uh, more about your life than you knew. You know, it's really something of that going on here in the dynamic of the text of Exodus chapter 3. In fact, Moses' own request here of, of gaining from God his name is understandable When you realize that God has already got a lot on Moses. You remember that burning bush from last week when we considered Moses' own approach to this bush that continued to burn and then wasn't consumed. And Moses, as he's keeping flocks there on the hillside in Horeb, just outside of Midian, he starts to move towards that burning bush. And as he gets a little close to the bush, the bush talks And the bush says, Moses, Moses, don't come any closer. It's a little disconcerting when a bush calls you by name. It's a little off-putting. It puts you on your heels. You're not used to this engagement. And then, lo and behold, this bush, which is none other than the angel of the Lord, God himself speaking to Moses, then begins to give him a charge. Come, You will be my deliverer of the people of Israel. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh and you're going to tell him to let my people go. And you will be the deliverer of my people, leading them out of Egypt all the way to the promised land. And then Moses, of course, in that moment said, who am I that I should gain this charge? And you can hear the sense of inadequacy in Moses' own voice when he says it. And God says to Moses in return, Yes, I didn't choose you because I thought you could do it. Just know I will be with you. I will be with you. That's where we landed last week to say that the Lord in his response to Moses' insecurity... Moses' concern about the daunting call and his ability to be able to fulfill it was met with God's promise of his presence. But I want you to put yourself in Moses' shoes. It's clear that God knows who he is. Now God has called him to an impossible task, and yet this God says he's going to be with him every step of the way. You would anticipate then that Moses would like to say, Okay... If you know me, you're calling me to this life-changing task, and you're going to go with me as a partner in ministry the whole way, it'd be nice to know your name. It'd be nice, you know, if we could be on a first-name basis, since we're going to spend so much time together over the next 40 years on mission, leading the people of Israel out of Egypt on our way to the Promised Land. Would you, if my, excuse me, Would you? My, I didn't catch your name. What's interesting as the passage unfolds is it's not really that that Moses is looking for. It's not what drives him. is that God knows so much about him and has called him to so much and he's going to be there that motivates Moses to ask the question, what is your name? Rather, Moses is focused on the mission. Isn't it interesting there in verse 13, Moses says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? It's pretty fascinating that Moses jumps right into the shoes of fulfilling the mission. If I actually go and do this, and and I'm thinking through the mission and how it would unfold, I can imagine a scenario where I would show up in Egypt, and I would call, as you've told me to, the elders of Israel together, and I would tell them, hey, remember me? I left 40 years ago as a fugitive and I've been in Midian. I've now married and I have children and and a pretty comfortable life there. But as I was keeping flocks the other day for my father-in-law Jethro family business thing, and then as I was doing that, I saw a burning bush and I went over to the bush and the bush started talking to me and it was your God and it said I should deliver you. So here I am. Moses uh, imagines a scenario where that would not have the ring of plausibility. He imagines a context where people would say, prove it. Prove it. What is his name? Moses wants what I suspect any of us would want to be called on a mission like this. He wants a surefire way to convince the elders of Israel that this is legit. And he's not making this up, that God has sent him with the purpose of deliverance. And that one way or another he might persuade them that if he shares the name of God, they might be willing to believe him. Now that's a very understandable place for Moses to be. I would imagine many of us in this room uh, thinking similar scenarios of how this might play out and wanting ourselves to be as compelling as possible um, because if you're not compelling, it probably means you're going to die. And so we want to be as compelling as possible when we we head back to Egypt. But what Moses does here is quite bold. We we might even say brazen, um, at least by ancient Near Eastern standards. You see, he presumes here that he can speak to God in the way that God speaks to him. That God can make requests of him and that Moses will—Moses can make requests of God. There's a kind of boldness, even brazen quality, that as you read through the text doesn't immediately surface until you realize that He's here speaking to the one true living God and assuming that he can get from him that which it is that he's asking for. There's a kind of familiarity in the way that he speaks. A kind of equality in the way that he presumes this relationship is going to go. And yes, that's not the kind of relationship that Moses actually has with God. Moses is under God. He's under God's authority. God is the one who can reveal or not reveal. God is the one who's in charge. Moses is the one who's in his submission. And yet with the boldness of what we see here with Moses is that he believes that this God in his name is critical to the unfolding and the success of this mission. Do you know a name, just as it is for persons, was true among gods. To distinguish one god from another, you needed to know its name. The Egyptians had all kinds of gods, a whole plethora of gods. Gods for the sun and the moon and gods for the Nile and gods for fertility and all of them had a name. And if you wanted that god to do something for you, you needed to know its name. You needed to be able to invoke it, to be able to assess its ability and power, to be able to give you what it is that you're after. Now, we don't know for certain, but is it possible that some of the latent uh, Egyptian uh, cultural beliefs around gods are somehow present here even in the life of Moses? Uh, We don't have a strong sense of Moses' walk with this God. He's 80 years old at this point in time. For all we know, this is his initial introduction. uh, The first time that he's ever had any kind of encounter with the Lord. And it's something along the lines of the Apostle Paul's encounter. Where he meets him and is converted and called into missions all at the same time. Could it be that that is the situation with Moses here? And by asking the name of the God, he just wants to make sure that the the God is the right God to fit the task that he's called to. Are you the God of freeing people? (laughs) Because we're going to need a lot of that as we go into this mission. I want to make sure that the God matches the deed. The God matches the mission. And the name is going to tell me whether the match is right. Now maybe you've heard the line from William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, What's in a name? Maybe you recall Juliet raising that very question around uh, Romeo, who she has fallen in love with. What's in a name? That which we call a rose, Juliet says, by any other name would smell just as sweet. Meaning that you could call a rose a tulip and it's still a rose and it's still going to smell sweet no matter what it is that you call it. A name is a name. It's not connected in any way to the essence of the person or of the being. That's Juliet's point and of course she wants, she wants to run off with Romeo but Romeo has a bad last name. The families are not in a good relationship with each other. And so she wants to convince herself that the name doesn't matter. But if I were to mention some names of people in your past, you'd go, oh. And immediately with the reflection of that name, it would be a history. And there would be emotions. And there would be experiences that would be remembered. What's in a name? Well, there's a lot in a name. A name is connected to heritage. Heritage. It's connected to calling. It's connected to purpose. Especially in the Bible, it's tracked along with God's redemptive plan. We've already seen this in Exodus, haven't we, when we've looked at the name of Moses right there at the beginning of this wonderful book. You remember that his adopted mother gave him the name Moses, which means to draw out. And he was drawn out of the water. And what is it that he will actually do? He's going to be a redeemer who draws the people of Israel out of the water of the Red Sea into the freedom of the calling of the deliverance that God has placed upon Moses' life. You see, a name is actually speaking to his history, his origin. It's also speaking to his calling and his purpose. What's in a name? A lot's in a name. He's named his son Gershom, we saw in just a couple of of weeks ago. A name that means a stranger in a foreign land. Speaking to the very experience of identity and place in the world of Moses, even learning to be at home in his own skin. It's true, isn't it? When a name changes in the Bible, it's usually because of a divine encounter. As Abram changes to Abraham, or Sarai to Sarah, or Jacob to Israel. All name changes that we saw in the previous book in the book of Genesis. All of these are deeply tied to a person's purpose and calling. What's in a name? A lot's in a name. Which means that Moses, to ask for God's name, is actually grasping at the essence of who God is. He wants to know Him, really know Him. Not just know how to call Him, but to know Him personally. To have a sense of His essence, His significance, His purpose. Before this moment, only Jacob was willing with such audacity to ask God for His name. You remember in Genesis 32, Jacob wrestled with this mysterious figure all night long and at daybreak this figure is trying to get away and Jacob says don't go unless you bless me and he blesses Jacob and then as he begins to want to leave because it's day is coming and Jacob will see him Jacob says to him what is your name and do you remember the response in Genesis 32 Why do you ask me my name that's the response and that's all that's given No name is actually given of that mysterious divine figure who is, of course, likely the very figure here in the burning of the bush. It's a theophany, the presence of Almighty God who came to Jacob in the middle of the night has now come to Moses. But the soft rebuke that Jacob experiences, notice Moses doesn't. Could it be that we have come to a turning point in redemptive history where now is the time at which God is to share with us His name? You know, the unfolding of biblical history is indeed an unfolding of the character and the purpose of God. You don't get everything at the first page. The story unfolds and it has twists and it has turns. And with every twist and with every turn, more about this God is known. More is revealed about His character and His purposes. It's at this point in the second book of this grand story known as the Bible speaking to us about the gospel of Jesus Christ where we learn something more significant about who this God is. We learn his name. At this point in redemptive history, God wants to communicate to Moses and acquiesces to his request that his name is, I am that I am. Now it's interesting when you look at that name, and you look at the way it's expressed there in verse 15, you see that God's saying multiple things. He says, I am that I am, and then he says, tell them that I am has sent you. And then he says, tell them that the Lord, which is the words I am, The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent you. Three things, actually, three statements from the Lord. All in some sense, giving His name and defining His name. Describing the mission that He's been on. Describing the mission that He's on now. And even giving indication that His mission is going to unfold into the future. It's a rich statement that has a name in it, but also has a description in it. Also as a sense of where he's been and what he's up to. And even as a sense of where it is that he's going. You see, God understands this connection between name and mission as is unfolded through the biblical story. And it's here where he begins to not only tell us his name, but unpack it a little bit. We might say he preaches a little sermon on his name. Now this answer, I am that I am, has caused fits for interpreters over the years. I mean, what kind of name is this? What exactly is God trying to say when He says, I am, that I am? Interestingly, in the Hebrew, it's just the to be verb. Uh, It is the very basic uh, verbal unit of the Hebrew language. Um, It could be translated through a variety of senses. In fact, we've already had an echo of it in this passage. When God actually said to Moses, previous to the text that we're looking at today... Listen, I know you're worried about um, going on this mission to Egypt, but I want you to know that I will be with you. Do you know what the words I will be is? <laughs> I am, same to be verb. He's actually already shared his name in a sense when he said, I will be with you. He's echoing several promises of presence throughout this text. And it's speaking to us of of the clarity of which God is emphasizing that he wants to be known by and embraced with this phrase, I am. Now one commentator wrote that this answer from God is, well, not much of an answer. Moses probably heard the answer, I am, and spent the rest of his life trying to figure out what I am means. Another commentator says that God's answer to Moses is notoriously enigmatic. It is as much a non-answer as it is an answer. And still another commentator writes, God's revelation of his name obscures as much as it reveals maybe more. Now there is something true to these commentators as they're noting the the almost incomprehensibility of this name I am and all of what's trying to be communicated to it. It is certainly bound up in a lot of mystery and we could spend some time chasing that down. That would be a valid approach, but that's not what we're going to do. I would like to agree actually with the commentators who recognize a visible relationship between the way God presents himself in a sign, namely the sign of the burning bush, and the way God speaks of himself as I am that I am. We might say that the eyes and the ears are coming together to say one specific thing in this text. That what Moses is actually seeing right now, the burning bush, is in a sense a visual of I am that I am. Now, it's not uncommon to just make a note on the structure. It's not uncommon in the text of Scripture for a redemptive event to happen and then for God to tell you about it, tell you how you should think about it. God's gonna do that over and over in the book of Exodus. He's gonna lead the people through the Red Sea and then He's gonna tell them about what He did and He's gonna unpack for them what it means. He's going to rain manna from heaven and then he's going to give water from a rock and then he's going to pause and he's going to tell the people what this means. He's going to, going to be flashes of lightning on Mount Sinai and quakings around that, that mountain later in the text and God's going to speak to them about what all of that means. Moses is going to be his intermediary to be able to do that. God regularly speaks and interprets his own events so that we understand what they mean. Now, why is that important? Well, let's just think of the cross for a second. If we were to look just strictly at the cross and we were to say to ourselves, what is the cross? Well, the cross is a a man in in the ancient Near East, in the first century by the name of Jesus, who died on a cross. It's a sad and it's a gruesome tale. And in one very real sense, that is true. That's exactly what it is. But when you begin to read throughout the New Testament and the unpacking of the cross begins to be interpreted through Jesus' own words and later Paul's interpretation, what we begin to find out is that this is not just merely the death of a man in the first century who is a Hebrew and a gruesome and sad tale. We begin to realize why the cross happened. What is the cross's significance? And we learn that on the cross... This man, by the name of Jesus Christ, has come to die for the sins of his people. And all of a sudden we begin to realize that this cross could be interpreted a million different ways. But the Bible, in its wisdom through God's graciousness, has not left the cross up to interpretation by man. He's going to tell us what we should think about it. God has given to us the redemptive event, but then he has interpreted it with his own mouth. He is speaking to us about how we should receive it. And all of a sudden, the bad and gruesome tale about the crucifixion of Jesus becomes good news, and we become gloriously joyful about it. I think something very similar is happening here in Exodus chapter 3. That as Moses is standing before this burning bush, he is seeing this visual portrait of what Sinclair Ferguson calls an acted parable. What does he mean? Well, think with me. Moses has been called by the one who names himself I am. And in the midst of that naming, Moses has before his eyes the burning of a bush whose fire is never going Never going out. Moses was drawn to this bush because as he looked at it, it never seemed to die. The fire just continued to burn. And as he got close to it, he realized that it wasn't just a fire, just any old fire. It wasn't like the fire that's in your fire pit or my fire pit. That we stack full of wood and we ignite it and we walk away for five minutes and it needs stoking again and it needs more feeding. No, not this fire. That this fire is one that exists on its own. This is a fire that continues to burn in its its own light, through its own energy, through its own power. It doesn't even need the bush. The bush is not even good for kindling for this kind of fire. Because this fire is not of this world. This fire is a portrait and a picture of the God who is revealing himself in and through the fire. And what is he saying? This fire that never dies? He's saying, I am. Eternal and unchangeable in my being. I am full and complete, self-sustaining, needing nothing else but myself. I am complete within me. A God who has been from eternity past, present, and into the future. A God who actually reveals himself in his very words through the visual of the fire that never burns out, that this is a God who is going to be around forever. One who has the power and the strength to carry through with His plans. One who will not die with His plans. But one who will see His plans all the way through as one who never dies, who has self-sustaining power to accomplish it and will see it through unto eternity. Notice the phrase that he uses there in verse 15, even the rhythm of past, present, and future. Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What is that? Well, it's past. (laughs) The God of your fathers, the ones who have already gone to sleep, and whose minds and thoughts and passions and desires, as it were, died with them and now dwell within the presence of the Lord. I am their God. God. I am the one who is visiting you in the present. I have been sent to you. I'm at work. The one who has been Lord of the past, who was present in the past, is the one who is at work in the midst of the present. And then notice how he says it. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered for all generations. It's as if he, it's as if he has a plan for the future of how he wants to be remembered, what's what he wants to accomplish, what's in view. Isn't that the whole final section? of Exodus chapter 3. Doesn't he tell Moses exactly how the rest of the book is going to unfold? By the way, you're going to go to Egypt. You're going to talk uh, to to Pharaoh. You're going to say that the God of the Israelites met with you. You're going to ask him to go out in the wilderness for three days. to sacrifice to me. He's going to tell you no. And then I'm going to have to do all kinds of signs and wonders through you to compel his hand, and I will bring you out mightily. And when I bring you out mightily, you'll be plundered with all of the Egyptian stuff. It's going to be amazing. So let's get going. He tells the future. He's the God of the past. He's the God at work in the present. He's the God who's into the future. He's revealing to Moses that I am that I am. I am the eternal God whose flame never goes out. And I am the sufficient one who has power and resources to accomplish my ends. I am the one who will be the redeemer of my people. You can imagine how important this is to hear from Moses, a man who has 40 years left in his life. He's 80 at this point. He'll be 120 when he dies. It's the last third of his life. It's beginning right now as he hears the voice of the Lord. And he knows his weakness. He knows his inadequacy. We might say he knows his past, his failures, his running and escape from conflict and difficulty. In the midst of his present, he's weak and inadequate. He's got a future that he knows as an older man, he may or may not be able to see through. He needs to have a God who can free him from the bondage of his past and the failures that may haunt him. From the inadequacy of the present, of which he would struggle to answer the call. From the foreboding of the future, of what would come forward. If he failed, if he didn't see it through, what would happen? He needs a God who is I am a God who is eternal, a God who is sufficient, one in which he can relax into and know that this God is the God of the deliverer of the people of Israel. You know, when we think through that call from Moses and we think of this God revealing himself to us eternally and sufficiently, how helpful is that to you right now as you sit in this room, some of us plagued by our past? thinking that we're never going to overcome that thing. Whatever that thing is. That sense of shame that came from that great loss. From the early expectations of what you would accomplish, look at you now. Where have you gone? What has happened? Is there any hope? Has time run out? Has your ship left? We have a God who's over the past, who frees you from the past. Is a God who rules and can redeem the past. As Moses may have felt that he had settled for an ordinary life there on the side of Mount Horeb. Escaping any great, as it were, great life of followership, of redeeming and rescuing his own people. Being a redemptive influence in the life of the people of Israel. One who had grown up within the courts of Egypt and now had settled into a shepherd with quite a beard on the side of Mount Horeb. And God came to him and he's freeing him from that. And he's telling him, listen, what I'm calling you to is, well, it's way beyond your pay grade. Some of us feel that right now with challenges in our own lives, don't we? The things that are before us. With jobs and with families and relationships. The vocations and financial struggles. With sinful Addictions. With the things that are right now battling within our own hearts, we feel like we can't overcome them. There's nothing we can do to actually answer the call that we know that's before us. Some of us know that the Lord had called us to other things and we decided to go an easier route. And we wonder what we should do about that now. God's at work in this moment. I want you to know I have sent you, he says to Moses. And he says, It's not going to be your strength, it's going to be my sending. And the fact that I'm at your side, I've already got your future scripted. Some of us are paralyzed by our future. There's not enough money in the retirement account. We're paying, for goodness sakes, four thirty-nine dollars a gallon for gas. How are we going to survive this? These are the things, right? The fears of the future. How is it going to play out? I am is here. I want you to know that. He is the God of the past. He's the God of the present. He's the God of the future. Those are the things that don't dictate the unfolding. You know what it dictates the unfolding? God sending you. His Word, His promise, and His presence. The I am being here. That's what it is. The beauty of this text is that we realize that the sufficiency is ultimately found in Christ for the things of which we are called for. And God already has the end finished. We're just about discovering it as we go by faith. Oh, what a comfort that must have been to Moses to hear that God is older than Pharaoh and he's going to live after Pharaoh. That God is older than Egypt and his kingdom is more powerful. And long after Egypt is merely in the dustbin of history, God's kingdom will be going strong. I had a friend recently who visited Egypt and there he was in the the dustbin of Egypt Uh, Watching and seeing these ancient pyramids, incredible architectural features. And yet, where has the superpower of Egypt gone? Such is the life of men and nations. But how has the kingdom of God grown? Exactly. Continues to march forward by the I Am. Who today, through the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel, is advancing His church in every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. This is why John wants to teach us actually in his gospel that Jesus has come. And that he ultimately is foreshadowed here in Exodus chapter 3. You see this I am, that I am, John tells us is none other than Jesus himself. This is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity making himself known here in Exodus chapter 3. But he will go by the name Jesus Christ when he becomes a man. Come to save and redeem his people for their sins to be able to actually lead a greater exodus. That's why John structured the entirety of his gospel around seven I am statements of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those, I am the bread, I am the door, I am the vine. All of those passages, all of those are structured around the the revelation of this name in Exodus chapter 3. It's Jesus telling to us through the apostle John that he is the voice in the bush. And He has come to deliver His people. Isn't it remarkable that He is now already orchestrating and crafting the deliverance of His people in the Old Testament? And what will Jesus do when He comes to the earth but deliver His people globally from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation? His deliverance is spreading over all of the earth. And one day when He returns, we're going to see the ultimate power and sufficiency and glory and eternality of this Savior when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord, that He is the name above all names. You know, we got a foretaste of that at the end of John's gospel. It's a fascinating text, John chapter 18. It's there where Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and He's, he's been praying with His disciples. And His enemies are coming. And they're represented by the guards, the Roman guards, who Judas himself has manipulated along with the Sanhedrin. And they've now come to, to, to take into captivity Jesus. And they have, a, they have a plan that's going to lead to his crucifixion. And it's a fascinating moment because as they show up in the garden, the guards ask, where is Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus turns and responds... I am. And immediately we're told that the guards are blown back and fall to the ground. A foretaste. And actually a little bit of hearkening back to Exodus chapter 3. Of a Moses who called out for the name of God. But who as he approached that eternal fire... In the presence of the Lord, we're told he hid his face for he did not want to see God. The humility of the guards in that moment revealed that the power even of the words I am out of the mouth of Jesus had the ability of putting the guards exactly where they needed to be. Where was that? On their knees. Which, my friends, is where all of us will be when Jesus returns. It's where the great I am have all of us when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord that Jesus is I am the Redeemer and the Deliverer of His people it's in that day that all of the world will unmistakably know the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus our King will deliver forevermore Whatever it is that you're facing in your own moment of time. I'm going to suggest is probably not quite as foreboding as the call of Moses. That you have been called to take, I don't know, a million to a million and a half Israelites out of Egypt. Across the wilderness and part Red Seas and things like that. I'm just going to imagine that whatever your calling is, it's not quite to the level of what Moses is being called here. But yet... God provided for Moses, didn't he? And God has provided for you in Christ. And if God can provide for Moses in such a great calling, a man who's going to argue for a little while with God over whether he should go, and God will be patient and God will compel him in one way or another, if we can see God's sufficiency in the work of the life of Moses, and we can see God's fulfillment in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you think you can trust Him for the challenges you've got to face? you think you could trust Him? No matter what plagues you from your past, no matter what challenges you're dealing in the present, no matter how overwhelming the future may seem, you think the ever-burning, eternal, and sufficient flame of God through the power of Christ for you will be the one who leads, will be enough for you? I dare say he will. And today I pray that as you bring your life before the Lord and as the Lord is brought to remembrance past, present, and future challenges that you're able to lay them at the feet of Jesus and know that he has got you. That he walks with you. That he never leaves you nor forsakes you. And that no matter how much time feels like it will be wasted And no matter how scary the tomorrow looks, the God who is with you is the great I Am. And today He goes by the name of Jesus Christ, your Savior and your Lord. And He loves you. And He loves His church. And long after Putin has died, the kingdom of God will reign. Men and nations will come and go. Different people will inhabit these pews should that time come. But the name of Jesus will forevermore be known and reign over all of the earth. Don't miss the opportunity to live for the one who has called you now. And who is with you every step of the way. Father in heaven, would you please by your grace now hear these, your words. And would we take them to heart? Would we lay aside every encumbrance and run the race that is set before us? Looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter, the one who is in the past and the one who is in the future, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Set him now before us by faith through the power of the Spirit, and give to us a heart. It says yes to his call. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.